our fathers this morning. Happy Father's Day to all you dads. I want to say a welcome to everyone who's with us today, all of you folks who are in person, all of you folks who are joining us online. Thanks for making worship a priority on this Father's Day weekend. And I want to give an extra special greeting to anybody who might be a guest with us. Thanks so much for checking us out. I hope you... Uh, uh, have a good experience and that we'll get the opportunity to see you again and get to know you. If you've got a Bible, let me hear your pages turning to the New Testament book of Romans. And when you find the book of Romans, I want you to find chapter 5. We're going to spend our time today in Romans chapter 5 in this special message series called Unashamed. And what we're doing is we're working our way through the book of Romans, 16 chapters in the book of Romans. We're working our way through the book of Romans, chapter by chapter, pay close attention to that, not verse by verse, but chapter by chapter. And one of the challenges in doing that, I'm talking about going through the book chapter by chapter rather than verse by verse, is finding a way to connect each chapter and connect each message. A couple of weeks ago, I preached from Romans chapter three, and the clear message from that chapter was, no one is good, no one. And just in case you weren't with us, uh, let me give you a little bit of an explanation. The Bible clearly teaches us that no one based solely on their own merit is right with God because all of us are sinners. I know that's something that's not talked about a lot today, and especially in some churches, you don't hear that very often, so it can be hard for people to hear, but it's the truth. In fact, Romans 3.23 comes right out and says, for all, everyone say all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the reality that all of us are living in on our own. One of the most fundamental truths the Bible teaches us about God is that He is holy. And while there are a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about that, from a practical standpoint, I've always loved the words of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 that says, this is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And of course, when you read that verse, you understand that the word light is synonymous with holiness, and darkness is synonymous with anything that's not holy, or in other words, it's synonymous with sin. That's the truth of the Scripture. Now, you take that truth about God in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, and you contrast that with what we just talked about from Romans three twenty three: for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and you see, the problem, we all have this one really big problem. Because we're sinful and because God is holy, he can't live in fellowship with us. A holy God cannot exist in fellowship with a sinful man. But as we learned at the end of that message I shared from Romans 3, and in particular from Andrew's message from Romans chapter 4 last week, being right with God is not a matter of anything we do because the truth is you and I on our own can never do enough good things to overcome the reality of our sin and our separation from God. And so what the Bible teaches us, and this is a really important part of what we call the good news is that being made right with God is something that happens when we put our faith and our trust in his son, Jesus, who came into the world, lived a completely sinless life, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and then rose from the dead. Here's a simple way to think about it. When Jesus came to the world, he died on the cross. He paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Somebody say amen to that. That's what happened. And the reason why his one life, his one solitary life was sufficient to pay the debt 
for the sin of everyone who puts their faith and trust in him is because he was not an ordinary man. He was the son of God, or in other words, he was God in human flesh, and he didn't live an ordinary life. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And what Andrew did last week is he illustrated this truth when he led us through Romans chapter four. He illustrated this truth that we are not saved by our works, by the good things that we do, but by our faith in Jesus. He illustrated that in the life of a man named Abraham, who was one of the central characters of the Old Testament. He's the father of the Jewish people and a man who was righteous before God. And he began by sharing these two verses from Romans chapter one. I've got them on the screen in the New Living Translation rather than my normal NIV. And those verses say, Abraham was humanly speaking, the founder of, the, of our Jewish nation. Now note this, what did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to brag about. Note this, but that was not God's way. It's not God's way for us to work our way into a relationship with him by our own human effort. We are saved because of our faith and trust in Jesus. And so in the end, even though Abraham was a man that we know about from the Old Testament, he was made right with God because of his faith. And it's the same for you and me and anyone else today. Last Sunday at this same nine o'clock service, the service ended in a very moving way as we saw three fathers baptize their daughters. They stood in the baptistry behind me and they led their daughters in a profession of faith. So. Each one of those girls spoke a confession of faith. They said out loud in the presence of God and all the witnesses that were there, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and I confess him as my Lord and Savior. And so they made a declaration or a confession of the faith that saves them, the faith that has given them a right relationship with God now at their young age in their young lives. And after that, each of their dads baptized them into Christ. They said, because of this confession of faith, because of what you have just declared to be true in your life, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've told you before that uh, baptism is such a, an important thing in our lives of faith, and it's an important thing in our lives of faith for a variety of different reasons, uh, but at the top of the list is just the simple fact that God commands us to be baptized. And if you're someone here this morning or listening to me online who says, you know, I, I, I believe in Jesus, I put my faith and trust in Jesus, but you've never obeyed this command to be baptized uh, because you don't think it's important, then I want you to listen to me close. The Bible commands us to be baptized. That's at the top of the list for the reasons why we do it. Uh, and when God commands us to do something, we don't, it's not our job to debate it, it's our job to obey it. Somebody say amen to that. In Acts chapter two, we read about the first really significant acts of baptism in uh, the uh, early church. It was the day of Pentecost and the apostles were there and uh, Peter stood up and preached what we we call the very first gospel sermon about Jesus. And why I say it would be the very first gospel sermon is because the very, very first sermon that was preached about Jesus after his death, burial, resurrection, and his return to glory. And it was a very short sermon. You can read it. It's not very long in Acts chapter two. And at the end of it, it was so powerful and so convicting that in Acts chapter two and verse 37, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
deeply convicted, and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That was their response. How should we respond to this? What do we need to do? Tell us more. And so Peter followed up in Acts 2.38 and said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when they say, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Clearly, clearly they were moved. Clearly they were at a point where their faith in Jesus was real. And he said, what, 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 what do we do? How do we, how do we demonstrate this? How do we express this? He said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And I tell you that there's only one way for us to look at that and other things that the New Testament says about baptism, and that is that baptism is the God-chosen, God-commanded expression of the faith that saves us. I mean, I've never had any difficulty understanding in my mind the truth that baptism is not a work. It's not a work. That's what, that's what people will sometimes say in, in, um, in regard to their, their decision not to be baptized or in regard to their decision to say, you know, I'll be baptized, but I, I, want, I don't really believe it. it's that big a deal. It's not a work. No one is saved by a ceremony. No one anywhere. Baptism is the expression of our faith. I've always felt like the making a profession or a confession of faith is important because Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. And so when those girls last week, for example, stood in the baptistry and they said out loud, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and I confess him as my Lord and savior. What they were doing was that they were, they were sharing their faith spoken. And when they were baptized, they were sharing their faith expressed in obedience. Their baptism was their faith in obedience. The Bible tells us that when we become Christians that a big part, important part of that is repentance too. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning to God. So repentance is a part of the way we show our faith in Christ that shows that we're right with God because repentance is our faith in action. Confession, faith spoken. Repentance, faith in action. Baptism, faith in obedience because it's faith that gives us the opportunity to live in a right relationship with God. But faith has never been just intellectual acknowledgement. It's never been just intellectual assent. It's never been just believing something from a factual standpoint. There's much more to it than that. That's why the book of James says, faith without works is dead. I, uh, I love it when we, we, we witness those baptisms because it's a reminder it's a reminder that we're not saved by our effort, our own human effort. We're saved by our faith in Jesus. I think baptism is one of the most precious experiences that any believer can have in their life. First and foremost, because it's an act of obedience to God. I read a story once about a little girl who was sitting in church and uh, the pastor baptized somebody and she'd never seen that happen before and she couldn't believe what happened. She turned to her mom and dad and said really loudly, that guy pushed him under the water. Why did he do that? And they tried to explain to her in the moment why uh, they, the pastor did that, but you know she wasn't having any of it. So later that night when they got home, they sat down with her and tried to give her a little bit more of a thorough explanation. And part of the, of the explanation was they explained to her how the baptism talks about, or the Bible talks about baptism washing our sins away. We know sin is nothing external, but there's this, there's this cleansing image with water. And uh, they said this man had obviously, like all of us, made some mistakes in his life and done some things he shouldn't have done. And, and uh, by being baptized, his sins were being washed away. And she thought about that for a moment and then she said well why didn't the pastor just spank him 
which really, from a pastor's perspective, is a really good question. <laughs> because sometimes there's nothing better than a good old-fashioned whooping. <laughs> but here's the bottom line that we have been taught so clearly so far in this journey through the book of Romans. We're all in the same boat. We're all in trouble on our own because of our sin. But because of what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, we can receive the forgiveness for our sin and be made right, made right with God through our personal faith and trust in Jesus. And that brings us to Romans chapter five. And if there's one message from Romans chapter five that we need to hear, it's the message that it's God's grace that makes this salvation that comes through faith and trust in Christ possible. It's God's marvelous grace that gives us this opportunity. And so if you've got your Bibles open to Romans chapter five and you're able this morning, I'm gonna invite you to stand with me for the reading of the scripture. When I came to church last night about four o'clock, which I normally do, I come a couple of hours before church and I just go over my notes and things and I, I just realized that when I was studying Romans chapter five, there was just one single verse that really captured my heart more than any others. It was Romans chapter five and verse 17. And while our, our message is promoted today as being Romans chapter five, verses 12 through 21, while we're standing together, I'm just gonna read a single verse. And as we go through the message, you'll see why. I'm just gonna read verse 17. You can look at it on the screen or you can find it in your Bible this morning, but this is what... Paul writes in Romans chapter five and verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's talk about grace in our remaining time together. It's one of those words that we use quite often in the English language, but we use it in a variety of different ways. We say grace over our meals. We say an athlete or a dancer is graceful. Our insurance company gives us a grace period if we are late with our payment. If someone is a really good host or hostess, we say that they're gracious. They're a gracious host or they're a gracious hostess and on and on and on. But when we use the word grace in this context, in the context of our salvation, our spiritual lives, the simplest and best definition is that grace is God's unmerited or undeserved kindness. That's not original with me. I'm sure you've heard some version of that if you've spent any time in church, but that's the best definition we can use. Grace is God's unmerited or undeserved kindness. And what that means is, is when we talk about God's love, we talk about God's mercy, his forgiveness, his help, his strength, and on and on and on. We're not talking about blessings that God gives us because we have somehow earned them through our good behavior. We're talking about God's grace, a way God pours his grace into our life. We're talking about things that we can't earn and that we will never on our own deserve. And the book of Romans shows us just how incredible this is because it basically tells us in Romans chapter five and beyond that through God's grace, you can become a brand new you, no matter who you were before, or where you've been, or what you've done, or how many times you've failed, you can become a brand new you. Now, some might hear that and think, well, it's too late for me. I, 
I gave up on becoming a brand new me a long time ago. I tried so many different things. I turned a new leaf. I, I, I made New Year's resolutions. I joined a gym. I went to AA. I even tried a variety of different churches, but in the end, nothing worked, and I just felt worse about myself than I ever felt before. Well, if that describes you, then you need to hear me say that you still have hope. There's still hope for you because of the grace of God and what it can do in your life. There's still hope for you. I've been a pastor a long time, which means I've had lots of conversations with people and I've heard lots of confessions from people about the struggles they have faced. And they have been all over the place in every area of life imaginable. I've heard the hearts of people who feel overwhelmed with guilt and grief because of the way they've lived their lives. But I can tell you that that is not the way God wants you to live. That is not the will of God for anyone. God's will is not for you to live a life filled with grief. It's not, it's not his will for you to live a life filled with guilt, no matter what it is you struggle with or where you have failed. God doesn't want to rub that guilt in. He wants to rub it out. And he can do that through his grace. In fact, I'll just be bold and I'll say to everyone who is listening to me right now, all of you folks here in person and all of you folks who are listening to me online, whatever the problem you have in your life is, I can, I can tell you the answer to that problem in a single word. It's grace. It's the grace that comes from God. And I'm reminded of that in Romans chapter five because in Romans chapter five, we see three different ways that God's grace can work in our lives. I'm gonna to try to do this quickly. If you like to take notes, write down the first way. And this has got to be at the top of the list for all of us because all of us need this. Grace provides forgiveness for your failures. Grace provides forgiveness for your failures. And listen to me, it doesn't matter what your failure is or how many times you've failed in the same way over and over and over again. Grace provides forgiveness for your failures. I've already established the truth that we're all in the same boat. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the reality that all of us are living in on our own. And Paul reinforces that truth in Romans chapter five and verse 12 when he writes these words, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man, and by the way, that's one man is Adam that Paul is writing about when Adam sinned. Just, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men, note this, because all sinned. And Paul just reinforces that truth that we saw in his third chapter. What is our third chapter of his letter to the church at Romans? We are all sinners. And so, that's something, that's the place where we have to start. And, and the reason why this is a problem is, is shared by Paul in Romans 5.12 and he says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. What does that mean? Uh, I already told you that one man is Adam and when he disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three, that's a reference for that because that's when sin entered the world. This is one of those areas, by the way, when we read and uh, study the Bible where, where we can apply that the most fundamental basic rule of, of hermeneutics, or in other words, the most basic fundamental rule of how we interpret or understand the Bible, and that rule I've told you over the years is when the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, right? So we don't have to stress over this. There's, there's, there's clarity in this. When he says, 
Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through that sin, and in this way came to all men, and and this in this way death came to all men because all sin. He's talking about what Adam did when he disobeyed God, because that opened the door for sin to enter the world. I don't want you to misunderstand that Adam it did not originate sin. The devil did that. Satan was or had already been sinning before Adam even came into being. In fact, look at these words on the screen from 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the, say it with me, beginning, beginning. It was the devil in the presence of the serpent in the Garden of Eden who tempted Eve to sin, which led to Adam's sin. But here's the bottom line. When Adam sinned, that's what allowed sin to enter the world. And once sin entered the world, it infected every part of the world. And the greatest level of infection came in the fact that it caused a separation between God and man. But the good news, as we've already established, is that because of what Jesus did when he came into the world and died in our place on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, because of that, sin doesn't have to have the final word in your life or mine or anyone's. And so the, this one passage in Romans chapter five really stands out to me. It's verses 15 through seven, 17. I want you to look at it on the screen. We obviously read verse 17 because it, it really drives home this truth for us that God's grace provides forgiveness for our failure. Paul writes and says, but the gift is not like the trespass. Now everybody look up here for a moment. The gift he's talking about is the gift of Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. The trespass is, what he, what he's, is uh, Adam's sin that allowed sin to enter the world. So he said, but the gift is not like the trespass. So he's basically saying the actions of Jesus and the action of Adam are two completely different things. And then he goes on to say, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more? Did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. And here's our verse. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's, note this, abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so really, I know that can sound a little bit confusing because we just pulled it out of the chapter and we let it, used it as a standalone passage. But what Paul is doing here is he's, he's contrasting the reality of Adam's action in the Garden of Eden when he, Eden when he disobeyed God and allowed sin to enter the world and Jesus' action when he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And so here are the three contrasts that he makes. Here's the first one in verse 15. The trespass or the sin of Adam brought death, but the gift of Jesus, his willingness to die on the cross to take our place to pay the penalty for our sin brought life. One brought death, one brought life. Then you move to verse 16 and he says the trespass or the sin of Adam brought condemnation. We all understand what that means, condemnation. But the gift of Jesus, again, his death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, brought justification, justification. So the contrast is between uh, condemnation and justification. Justification from that word justified, and I've told you before that the word justified can be easily understood by thinking about it like this, just as if I'd never sinned. A Adam's action brought condemnation, Jesus' action brought justification. The third contrast is in verse 17. He said that the trespass or the sin of Adam produced the opposite result that was sought. While the gift of Jesus, again, his death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, produced the exact result that was sought. What does that mean? Well, think back with me for a moment. 
There's a story of Adam and Eve's temptation that led to sin in Genesis chapter three. It begins with the devil showing up in the presence of the serpent and sowing a seed of doubt in Eve's mind about the truthfulness of God's word, or in other words, the truthfulness about what God had said to them. And so he says in Genesis 3, 1, uh, or this is what we read in Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? And let me tell you something, friends. Just park there for a moment, okay? Because the only real, the only real weapon Satan has to use against you is deceit and lies. And that was the only weapon he had all the way back in Genesis chapter three and is the only weapon he has right now today, really. And so what's the one thing you, knew, you need to overcome the enemy's lies? You just need the truth, right? That's why it's so important for you to know your Bible. And so he said, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Eve replied, this is Genesis 3, 2 and 3. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you, may not, you must not eat fruit from the, or excuse me, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. To which the devil replies now, this is Genesis 3, 4 and 5. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so here's the bottom line, friends. Adam and Eve sinned ultimately because they wanted to be like God. But their sin produced the exact opposite of that because they became more unlike God because they went from pe people who were living in a perfect relationship with God to people whose, whose lives were marred by sin resulting in separation from God. And in contrast to that, Jesus' death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin means that anyone who puts their faith and trust in him will experience a completely right relationship with God. So, God's grace provides forgiveness for our failures. What our failures on their own lead to our death and condemnation and being completely unlike or separated from God. But what Jesus did on the cross when he died for your sin and mine brings life and justification and a completely right relationship with God. So what are you looking for right now today in your life? Let me just speak for a moment to anybody listening to me who may not be living with the absolute, complete, clear assurance that their life is right with God. What are you looking for in your life right now? I guarantee you that no matter what, how you would describe it or how you would characterize it, what you're looking for is the kind of life you were created for, and that is a life that's lived in fellowship with God. And so you have two choices, two options. You can trust God, and you can, as a result experience the abundant provision of God's grace in your life, or you can go your own way, which leads to death. And I'm not just talking about physical death, although that's part of it. I'm talking about eternal separation from God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done up to this point. It doesn't matter how many times you failed, how many times you failed in the same way over and over and over again. You can receive the abundant provision of the grace of God when you surrender your life in complete faith and trust to Jesus. 
Here's the second thing Romans 5 teaches us about God's grace. Grace provides strength for your weakness. Number one, it provides forgiveness for your failure. Number two, it provides strength for your weakness. And I go back to that same verse, Romans 5, 17, for if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, reign in life rather through the one man, Jesus Christ. Let's talk about what it means to have the gift of righteousness reign in your life. Let's try to understand that on a practical level. I'm gonna try to explain it real simply. When you became a Christian, your life completely changed positionally. Positionally. And what I mean by that is when you became a Christian, you received a brand new position in the presence of God because your life is no longer covered by your sin. Your life is covered by the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, he no longer sees you as sinful because you have this new position in Christ. Those are the key words, in Christ. In just a few weeks, uh, we'll be in Romans chapter eight, which is probably the chapter in the book of Romans that most people are familiar with. And uh, Romans chapter eight begins like this. In Romans eight, verse one, you can see it on the screen. It begins like this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in, say the last part with me, Christ Jesus, in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so because of that, you have this new position before God, covered by the righteousness of Christ, and it's an incredibly uh, blessed life that you have because of this new position. You have this positional righteousness before God covered in Christ. Now, what do you need to go along with that? You need a practical righteousness. If you have a positional righteousness in that this is the way God sees you, you need to have a practical righteousness in that this is the way you now should live your life. You should put your positional righteousness into practice in your daily life. And that practical righteousness happens in our lives. We put it into practice when we let God's grace, that same unmerited and undeserved kindness that saves us, when we, put, when we let God's grace work inside of us to transform us from the inside out, to transform our behavior, which is the will of God for all of us. We go back to Romans chapter eight again, and Romans chapter eight and verse 29 says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. When you become a Christian, it is not God's will for you to stay the same as you are right now. It's for you to be changed. I've met so many believers over the years, and I, I have this, this, this is one of the great blessings of being a pastor in the local church. I've met so many people who, you know, have these clear, you know, I hate saying this because I have to say it first, like I got all my own faults and flaws. The people who have these, these struggles in their life, these faults and these flaws in their lives, and when confronted by it, they say, you know, I can't help it, that's just the way I am. But when you become a Christian, that's not the way you're supposed to stay. So quit using that as an excuse. You've got to put your position into practice and your life can be transformed when you do that by allowing the Holy Spirit to work inside of you to transform you from the inside out. And I think this is what we all want. Think of it like this. Maybe you have a problem with anger. I doubt anybody here does, but maybe you do. Do you want to say, I'm glad that when I lose my temper, God forgives me so I don't have to spend the rest of my life feeling guilty about it? Or do you want to say, I'm glad that because of God's grace at work in my life, I don't have to lose my temper anymore? Which would you rather choose? I think the answer is obvious. 
Romans was written by the Apostle Paul who wrote in his first letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And yet Paul's life was completely dramatically changed. Was it because he, he tried really, really hard to be good? No. It's because the Holy Spirit, he allowed the Holy Spirit to work inside of him and the grace of God to work inside of him. The Holy Spirit is one of the greatest evidences of God's grace in our life to transform his life and change his life from the inside out. Uh, thinking about the Apostle Paul, let me, let me, just, let me just give you an example of, of, uh, of how God's grace can work inside of us to change us. I'm gonna put the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses seven through 10, 10 up on the screen. I gotta go quick here. Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insult and hardship and persecution and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. All right, we can just talk about one thing. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. There was... There was a thorn in the flesh, that's how Paul describes it, that was tormenting him. And he was suffering as a result of it. And so he says, three times I plead with the Lord to take it away from me, but all three times God's answer to him was the same. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace, my grace, that's what we're talking about. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. It could have been any number of different things. It's not important that we know specifically what it was. What's important is that each time Paul pleaded with God to take it away, and have you, ever, have you been there? Anybody? Pleading with God to end the suffering, and the suffering can come into our lives in so many different ways. Each time God's response was the same, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Here's an important truth to understand about that. When God responds to Paul by saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, his response comes in the perfect present tense. And I'm not just throwing that in for filler. There's an important thing that we need to understand about that. Because when his answer my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness came in the perfect present tense. It was, it was one of the things it was communicating to Paul was my answer is something that I set in place a long time ago and it hasn't changed today. My answer to your need is my grace because it's sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. God had set this answer in place a long time ago, and each time Paul prayed, he gave him the same answer. He said, you know what? My answer is still my grace. It's still my grace. It's still my grace. Nothing has changed. It'd be like somebody asking me, where do you live? And I say, I moved to Greenwood, Indiana, a little, uh, uh, almost 22 years ago, and I still live there today. Nothing has changed. This is, this is the way that this comes across. Paul says, remove this thorn, remove this thorn, remove this thorn, it's tormenting me. And each time God's answer was the same thing. My grace is sufficient. Let me put it in my own words. Paul prays and says, God, see if you've been here. I can't take this anymore. The pain is too severe. The suffering is too intense. God says, Paul, I, I want you to know that I hear you and I understand you. I really do. I really do. 
You're asking for relief. You're asking to be rescued from the suffering. You're asking me to take it all away, but I'm not gonna do that, Paul, because I've already given you what you need the most. I've already given you my grace. I'm not gonna remove the suffering, but here's what I'm gonna do. I'll turn up my grace to help you make it through. And so it ended up being God's grace that helped Paul survive this incredibly intense time of suffering that led him to plead with God multiple times, please, please, please take it away. And so one of the lessons that comes from that is God's grace, the grace of God, is his standing answer to trial and to trouble that leads to suffering. It always has been. It always will be. And what we can count on is the greater the suffering, the greater the trial, the greater the trouble, the greater the need, the greater the grace. And so basically, if you take, go back to Paul's situation, God was saying, I'm not gonna remove this suffering because the process of what I'm trying to accomplish in your life is not over yet, and I'm gonna use my grace to accomplish that. So it's the grace of God that provides us with the opportunity to be saved, and it's the grace of God that provides us with the opportunity to be completely transformed in our lives from the inside out. It's just a, it's, it's just a, it's just God's marvelous gift to all of us. I've known people over the years as a pastor who have suffered some pretty horrific things. And I have had people look me in the face and say, I'm not gonna be able to survive this. And yet they do. Is it because they just tried really hard? Or is it because of the grace of God? One last thing real quickly, because I'm in the red. <laughs> grace provides you with confidence for living. Again, verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, note this, reign in life, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I'm pretty much out of time, so let me just describe what it looks like to reign in life by just using some more words from Paul. Again, I'm gonna go to Romans chapter eight. I'm gonna put verses 31 through 37 on the screen. This is what it looks like to reign in life as a result of the grace of God in your life. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Every one of us should find that passage of scripture in our Bibles, and we should write above that, what I did in mine, right above Romans chapter eight. I took a pen and I wrote the words, confidence for living. Whenever I'm feeling like I can't go on or life is shaky, I need to read these words. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or the sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God's grace gives us confidence as we live no matter what we face.
So the team can get ready to come and we'll close. Here's my word to everyone today. Look at me and listen to me close. Embrace God's grace in your life. If you're not a Christian, if you've never surrendered your life in faith and trusted Jesus, don't wait another day. Embrace the grace of God that provides forgiveness for your failures. If you're struggling in your life to get any traction and you seem to be on this endless cycle of repeating the same old mistakes over and over and over again and never ever getting an edge on, on the issues that, that, that you struggle with like anger or depression or, or, or whatever else it might be, embrace God's grace that can transform your life. And if you just live in fear, embrace God's grace that can give you confidence for living. There is nothing that you face or deal with in your life that cannot be removed or solved or benefited by the abundant provision of the grace of God. 